Good morning. My name is Alex Patterson. I'm the Executive Director of Canada 2020, and I'm very happy uh, to be here today. And on behalf of our entire team, uh, I want to welcome you to our fifth annual Health Innovation event. Uh, I also want to thank the weather for cooperating and allowing our guests from out of town to, to arrive here. You may live here forever now, I'm not sure. <laughs> uh, but, uh, but we really appreciate you making the trip. Uh, I don't want to take too much time off the top here because we really do have a packed agenda. Uh, but I did want to say a few words to set things up. Uh, first things first, I do want to thank uh, the group of, of companies and organizations that help us do what we do. Uh, first and foremost, I want to thank our sustaining partners. These are the companies and organizations that make what we do possible. Uh, they support our program year-round. Uh, they, they help us deliver a robust event and engagement agenda across the country. Uh, and and I, I really appreciate their help. And second, I want to thank the partners... Uh, that uh, specifically helped out with today's event. First and foremost, I want to thank Takeda, uh, the Canadian Medical Association, uh, Bayshore Healthcare, and the team at Santa's Health. Uh, they've helped us uh, with, with today's program, and I really want to thank them for their support. Uh, now on to the agenda. So Canada 2020 is proud to host this conversation for the fifth year in a row. And we always look for opportunities to convene timely conversations about emerging public policy challenges that sit just beyond the horizon. So in our health system in Canada is, is a point of national pride, but it is under immense pressure from shifting demographics, rising costs, and an aging population. So our agenda today is constructed to give us an insight into the work being done to create a more vibrant health innovation ecosystem that will address our health system sustainability challenges head on. We're going to start the day with remarks from CMA President Dr. Sandy Buckman, whose recent work on expanding virtual care opportunities for Canadians is of particular importance for today's conversation. Next, we'll hear from Mustafa Askari. He's the Chief Economist at the Institute for Fiscal Studies and Democracy about what we're up against with respect to an aging population. Afterwards, we'll turn things over to Bill Charnetsky, who I know many of you in this room know and know well. Uh, we'll hear from people working on the front lines of health innovation, from large multinationals to homegrown scale-ups. All told, we hope you come away from today's conversations with some new ideas, some new perspective and context for your own work, as we as a policy community work towards a more sustainable and effective health system for all Canadians. And with that, I am very pleased to hand things over to Dr. Sandy Buckman, President of CMA, to officially start the program. Dr. Buckman. Thank you, Alex. Well, nice to see you all. Good morning, everyone. Bonjour à tous. Um, so I'm Sandy Bachman. I'm president of the uh, Canadian Medical Association. And really, on behalf of our members, um, the physicians and medical students across the country, some of whom are here today, actually, uh, we thank you for the invitation to join you for your fifth annual Health Innovation Summit. So we're here today to confront the realities of our current healthcare system, which in many ways, as you, I think, all experience, uh, it's not serving Canadians the way it should. We're going to hear about what aspects of our system most desperately need to change, in particular, as we see some major shifts in our country's demographics. It's clear that we need to be thinking differently how we can both deliver and access care in this country. 
We're going to hear about innovations in healthcare delivery, what the future of care and treatment in Canada might look like, and where our country fits in the global health picture. There really isn't any question anymore is that as the world becomes more and more technologically driven, healthcare remains one of the areas where Canada is sorely lagging behind. And when I talk about technology here, I'm not referring to AI or big data or 3D printing, although no doubt they're going to affect healthcare and the practice of medicine in the near future. We're dealing with those issues all the time. But what I'm talking about here is getting off fax machines and making use of technology that's already been around for decades. So nothing really expensive or innovative, just moving on to stuff that we've had, but we're not using effectively or efficiently. So tools, tools that have made our lives easier and more efficient, like phones, like texting, even email, and they have yet to make their way to the healthcare environment in any consistent way. And in today's world, that gap is becoming less and less acceptable. So what's standing in the way? What's standing in the way of healthcare moving into the 21st century? It's certainly not patients who are stopping us. Uh, they want it, and they want it now. I'm a patient, okay? I want to be able to do my health care like I do my banking. And can I? Consider this data from a recent survey from Canada Health Infoway that shows a wide gap between the electronic access patients want and what the health system is able to offer. Well, more than 70% of Canadians would like to book their doctor's appointments online, just 9% of family physicians permit this. More than 60% of Canadians would like to email their health care provider, yet only 24% of family physicians currently offer that option. And while the more than 40% of Canadians would like to have video visits with their health care provider, just 4% of family physicians can accommodate them. So what's stopping us from closing these gaps? I can tell you from personal experience it's not physicians. I speak on behalf of my colleagues when I say physicians recognize the potential of virtual care services. They can help improve and expand access to care, a major challenge in this country, and it's and really so for patients from rural and remote communities. And as a complement to in-person treatment, virtual care can help make physicians' practices more efficient and save time on the patient's end as well. Imagine if patients could take a photo of their rash send it electronically to their physician, and follow up with a text exchange about whether an in-person consult was needed. That's actually something I do with my own kids and their children, my grandchildren. I'm getting pictures all the time. But I can't do it in the system securely. I can only do it with my children and grandchildren. It doesn't make sense. And imagine if this exchange was entered into a digital health record that could be accessed by the patient and other health care providers. Benefits are pretty clear. So if it's not patients, and if it's not doctors, what is standing in the way? Not surprisingly, the biggest barriers to virtual care in Canada are regulations and rules. Regulations and rules that were put in place many, many years ago, and that are no longer serving our needs. To look what needs to change, the CMA created a national virtual care task force in March of last year. We partnered with the uh, Royal College of Physicians and Surgeons of Canada and the Canadian Medical and the College of Family Physicians of Canada and the CMA. And together, this task force represents one of the largest medical associations in Canada. So it set out to examine the current barriers to providing virtual care in Canada and propose a series of recommendations for change. Just two weeks ago, we released our final report. The key recommendations include creating national standards for access to patient health information. These standards would ensure, would ensure that the same information is accessible to patients, accessible to caregivers, and to their families, and it would follow them wherever they access care in Canada. 
The task force also recommended simplifying the registration and licensing process for physicians so they can more easily care for patients living outside their province or territory. Uh, this is something we are largely unable to do at present. Unless you apply for a license in that uh, province or territory, in their jurisdiction, you can't practice there. So I can't, I'm safe to practice here in Ontario, but I'm not safe to practice in Northwest Territories or British Columbia, unless I go through an onerous process of trying to get that license. It's also clear, uh, it's, it's cleared the way for clear regulation around the safety and the quality of virtual care so that patients, families, and caregivers are protected and their privacy is guaranteed. The task force also made note of the fact that physicians need to be duly compensated for providing virtual care services, so a neutral kind of remuneration uh, that's not different than an uh, in-person visit. It also suggested that we should build virtual care into medical education and professional development. It doesn't happen now, so that young physicians are prepared and supported to adopt these new care methods. As you can see from these recommendations, it's not technology that's standing in the way of adopting virtual care. Regulations, rules, and processes created in a different time for a different world are what's standing in our way. And today, we now need to come together to make that change. And so I would... I reiterate the need for us to think about healthcare innovation, not just in terms of the latest technologies, the latest apps, the latest devices, although these are important. As we get ready to kick off today's discussions, I challenge us all to consider innovation in the broadest and simplest terms, thinking differently about what we do every day. When it comes to virtual care, this effort will involve many groups at many different levels, whether it's the medical regulators who will help change the licensing process or the deans of medicine who can update the medical curriculum for our students, or the federal government recognizing the need for new patient standards, or the provinces and territories seeing the need for new payment models, the list goes on. Many of these groups are represented in the room here today, and I call on you to join us in breaking down some of these barriers and making virtual care a reality for Canada. We hope the report will serve as a roadmap to getting us there. And with this report, we also wanted to open the floor for a broader discussion on the future of healthcare in Canada and what's required for us to achieve true excellence. And it's clear that national leadership is required, whether we're talking about virtual care or healthcare innovation more broadly. As healthcare stakeholders, we've learned from the past that when we each approach challenges from our perspective or from our individual silos, we end up with fragmentation we see, that we see in our system today. When it comes to changing our healthcare system, nothing will stick if we work in isolation. So thank you very much for the chance to open the conference here today. I'm very much looking forward to these discussions. Merci, miigwech. Thank you. Thank you, Alex. Thank you. Thank you. Great day. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Dr. Buckman. I know you've got a, a, a busy day to head off to, um, and we've got a busy day to, to get on to. So I'd like to welcome to the stage Mustafa Askari from the University of Ottawa's Institute for Fiscal Studies and Democracy. Mustafa. Thank you. Thank you, Alex. Uh, good morning. Uh, I was asked by Tim and Alex to, to talk about, uh, sort of provide the context for your discussion today. So I'll be talking about the cost of healthcare in Canada and where we are going with that and look at the provincial fiscal situation in that context. It's not directly related to innovation in the, the theme of the, today's discussion, but I think this would help frame the discussion. We have a public healthcare system and the cost matter, the fiscal situation of the provinces matter. 
to what extent they can actually provide services and whether they can afford the new technology, new innovation or not. So my hope is that I can provide that frame. So I'll be talking about the, the trend in healthcare costs, the public healthcare costs over the past, past 20 years, and then I will be uh, looking at the drivers of healthcare costs at the sort of the macro level, the high level, and demographics will be certainly one of them that Alex mentioned. And then uh, uh, further, uh, I would be sort of providing a projection of healthcare cost over the next 25 years by province and look at that and see whether provinces are actually facing a sustainability issue or not in that area and how, would, how, how can we actually do something to, uh, to help that and bring those costs down. So with that, I'm going to start with this boring chart that you, you, you see. This is, uh, this is total public health care expenditure. That's the provincial expenditure relative to Canada's GDP. And what it shows is an upward trend over the past 20 years, 25 years. And what, actually 40 years probably here, and what you see here is that a couple of uh, periods of uh, declines in the, in the healthcare costs relative to the size of the economy. And the major one was in the 1990s when the federal government significantly reduced healthcare transfer to, to the provinces, and that uh, led provinces to cut their health expenditures, and then we see that, that decline in that period. And then... More recently, what we see is that after the 2008-2009 recession, again, we saw a decline in healthcare expenditures. Again, all the provinces have started to sort of squeeze health expenditures because of the decline in their revenues as a result of the recession. And recently, we have seen a bit of a stability in healthcare expenditures. But when we look at the, the overall trend, we see a rise in health expenditure relative to GDP. Now, that by itself should be a warning for people who are looking at the sustainability of healthcare system in Canada. Now, given that healthcare expenditures are one of the largest items in provincial budgets, if they're growing faster than the size of the economy, you will face some problems in the future. You cannot have the largest item in your budget rising faster than the size of your economy and not facing any kind of a fiscal issue over time. So, so that, by itself, it gives you sort of the overall picture of what is happening to healthcare expenditure. Now, in this graph, what I'm doing is that I'm looking at the cost of health expenditure by different types, whether the physicians, hospitals, uh, drugs, uh, other kind of, uh, the sort of main categories of health expenditure by, for, by, the, pro, by the provinces. And um, what you see here, essentially, is that the 7.7% Average growth in drug expenditures over that period of time, from 1981 to 2018. So you see that drug expenditures, prescription drug expenditures, and the other category, which includes a bunch of stuff, are rising faster than any other category in that group. Now, neither of them is a big item in the overall health expenditure. In fact, drugs represent about 7% of healthcare cost but they're growing faster than other, uh, other categories. And that, again, is a sort of warning sign, that how do, we, how do we do something to make sure that 
one, the, one of these items does not get out of hand. And so that puts a lot of pressure on the system. Now, those uh, little orange uh, lines that you see on, the, on, on, on that chart essentially show the range of uh, expenses in each of those categories in different provinces. So some provinces are spending more on drugs, some provinces are spending less, and that, that sort of the, the distance between those two lines show the range of, of growth in, in, in those categories. Again, that gives you a picture of what is happening in different categories and how, 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 do, we, how do we deal with some of, the, some of the challenges that we face in those areas. Now, let's look at the drivers, the sort of macro drivers of healthcare cost. In Canada, we, we identify three items there, income or GDP at the, at the sort of the national or provincial level, would be one main driver of healthcare costs. Now, the GDP represents many, many different things, but overall, what the experience shows in Canada, in other countries, and many re research that has been done, that there is a very clear link between income and demand for healthcare. And in, in a number of studies in abroad and in Canada, we have actually seen that the link, the, the relationship between income and, and uh, demand for healthcare is very strong. In fact, for every, every percent of increase in, the, in income, we'll see in some areas, in some studies, that there will be an increase in healthcare spending above 1%. So there's that, what we call it, elasticity is above 1%. One. And there are, also some studies that show that that relationship is a little bit weaker. So generally, in most of the research that has been done in, in IMF, OECD, and here in Canada by the Parliamentary Budget Office and other, other researchers, essentially assume that there is a one-to-one -one relationship between, between income or GDP at the macro level and, and the, the healthcare demand and healthcare spending. So that's one of, one of the main drivers of, of, of healthcare spending. Now, the second driver, which all of you know, and you have seen this in many other places and many other presentations, is aging of the population. Uh, this, is a, this is data from the Canadian Institute of Health Information that the health, per capita health expenditure, public health expenditure by age group. And it's very clear that as you get closer to 60, 65 period, uh, the age group, healthcare costs per capita start rising really fast. And if you look at that, that chart, you see that in the, the sort of per capita expenditure uh, of the age group 85 to 90 is five times higher than the group 60 to 65. So it's very clear. You have all seen it, and those who are actually in the healthcare system and they know that this is happening, older people need more care, and uh, so they cost a lot more. And why is this important for Canada? Because we do have a, an aging problem in Canada. Like many other Western countries, we, we do face aging, and uh, this is showing the share of the population 65 and older to the overall to the total population by province in Canada from 2018 to 2038. And you see that the, those bars are rising. 
So the share of the older population, the seniors, is rising in Canada. What that means is that per capita health expenditures will be rising as a result of this. I mean, this is, this is very clear and there's a direct relationship there. The reason we have this demographic issue, obviously, is because, because we, the fertility rate in Canada is very low. We have about 1.6. We need 2.1 fertility rate just to maintain the population. And most of the growth in population in Canada is actually coming from immigration. The native population does not grow, actually it's declining. So, and on the other hand, life expectancy is rising, which is a reflection of our healthcare system, that people actually are healthier and live longer. But both factors result in an aging population, and that aging population puts pressure on healthcare costs. Now, the, the third uh, item that I mentioned in the health drivers was what I called excess cost growth. What I mean by this is that when we use income and aging factors and um, sort of decompose growth in healthcare expenditures, there is something left. There's a residual there that's not explained. And that residual, I call it the excess cost growth. There are other studies that call it, some, 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 in some studies they call it enrichment factor, which is the, the sort of the changes in the healthcare system is trying to improve the quality of the, of the healthcare. Now, why is this important? It is important because if there is that residual and it is, right, it is over time, it's staying there, that again pu will push healthcare expenditures up and that will have to be dealt with because you cannot have, again, as I said, you cannot have your healthcare expenditure rising faster the size of your economy forever. It is gonna, it's gonna catch up to, to, to the economy, to the fiscal situation, and something has to be done to that. Now, when I uh, decompose the growth in per capita health expenditure into those three factors, income, aging, and the excess cost growth, or that residual. And you see that by province, all the 10 provinces and territories, over that period of 2000, uh, well, I guess 2000, 2018, I just took that last 18 years to look at the more recent period. You see that all those provinces show an excess cost growth. That's the, 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 the sort of the gray uh, portion of the, of the bars. It doesn't look very big relative to the, to the impact of income and aging, but if it stays there over time, that accumulates and increases the cost. There's only one province there that shows actually negative excess cost. What it means is that that's Newfoundland. And for that province, what it means is that actually the healthcare cost is, is rising below the rate of growth of, of, uh, of GDP and the aging factor in Newfoundland, on average over that time period. Now, where is that coming from? What's, what's that cost? Where, where is it coming from? Some of that is certainly is from the in, inefficiency in the system. Could be operational inefficiencies, could be organizational inefficiencies, so they uh, to cost, and some of the things that Dr. Bachman mentioned in terms of if we can actually improve this, the way that the system is organized and we access our, our, our physicians and care, that may actually help 
reduce cost. However, a big part of that, many studies have shown, is because actually of the role of technology, new treatments, new drugs, new diagnostic systems in the system. They, actually, there is a difference between the healthcare industry and other industries in the sense that in other industries, when we see innovation, technology, normally what happens is that the cost actually will go down. In healthcare, it's the opposite. New treatments, new technology, new drugs will actually add to the cost of the healthcare. Because, especially because we have a public system where patients do not actually observe and see and feel the price of healthcare, the cost of healthcare. Although they pay, pay for it indirectly through their taxes, but they don't see it. So there is a, many consider this as a free good. And when you have a free good, demand is sort of, doesn't really have much limit. And when you have new technology, new drugs, new treatment, People want the best. People want the, the latest uh, technology, latest drugs. And so overall, what we see is that there is that impact from the technology on healthcare costs, and that, that again, puts, puts pressure on the, on, the, on the system. Now, I talk about this because in order to project what is going to happen to healthcare cost over time, you have to figure out what to do with that portion of the healthcare cost. How do we, how do we project that over time? And that's an important factor. So what I did was I essentially did a projection of healthcare cost over the next 25 years by using GDP for the provincial uh, economies, uh, the aging factor, which comes from the projection of the population by the Statistic Canada, and then that portion of the excess cost growth, which uh, that's a tricky one to do, but what I did was assume that that portion of the cost will actually decline over time, over that 25 years. And the reason is that, as I said, provincial governments will have to deal with this increasing costs. So they cannot continue managing their healthcare system in a way that it will be, it will have that positive uh, excess cost growth over time. So the assumption, underlying assumption is that gradually they will do things to bring that cost down, that, that excess cost growth down to zero. Despite that, when we look at the next 25 years, growth in per capita health expenditure, we see that every province will see an increase in healthcare spending relative to the size of its economy. By different degrees, mostly the, the uh, Atlantic provinces will see the higher increase, and the other provinces also will also see the Alberta and Saskatchewan a little bit lower, but, uh, but every, every province will see that. So again, this is a challenge. This is a fiscal challenge for all the provinces and for Canada as a whole. Now let's put that now in the context of the fiscal situation in all these provinces. Now, the, the Parliamentary Budget Office, uh, some of you may know what it is, uh, they do a study every year uh, which is called Fiscal Sustainability Assessment. 
And what that does is that looks at all the provinces and the national government, federal government, to see whether the current fiscal structure, the revenues and spending structures that the, the, those jurisdictions have, if that continues over time, given that we'll have an aging population, will, would they face any kind of fiscal sustainability challenge over time? So they, they provide this and they provide this indicator that shows whether the fiscal situation in, in the provinces is sustainable or not. Those positive bars is called, the, 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 this is called a fiscal gap estimate. What those bars show is that how much fiscal action those provinces have to take to ensure that their fiscal situation remains sustainable. And that is sort of measured by the ratio of their public debt to the size of their economy. And if that ratio increases over time, there is a sustainability issue. If that stays stable or declines, then there you don't have a sustainability issue. Every province that shows here a positive fiscal gap means that they have a fiscal challenge, which means that they have to take fiscal measures by reducing their spending or raising their taxes in order to ensure that their, the public debt-to-GDP ratio stays stable over time. If they don't, it will accelerate and they will have a debt problem and a fiscal, fiscal problem. There's only one province, Quebec, that has a negative fiscal gap now. This is based on the 2018 study of the, by the Parliamentary Budget Office. And the national government, the federal government, both have healthy fiscal situation. BC is right at the line, so they don't really have a problem. They're just, just, just slightly above, the, above zero. So we have this healthcare cost increase in that context. And you can see that part of that actually problem that they have that fiscal problem in those provinces because of the rising healthcare cost. So we have this in that context, which again, for, you know, it, it's a challenge for all those jurisdictions. So now we also seem to have a vertical imbalance, fiscal imbalance in Canada. As I showed you in the, in the previous chart, it shows that the federal government has a healthy fiscal situation relatively, and the provinces have this challenge. But this line shows the share of the federal government transfer, health transfer to the provinces over time. And the way that the federal government uh, sets that, that amount shows that it will actually decline over time. So over time, the federal government is not actually not helping the provinces to deal with the, with the rising health care. So there is that vertical imbalance also. So, so in summary, what we see is that all provinces face a fiscal challenge mainly driven by increasing health care costs. And we also talked a little bit about the role of technology, new treatments, and, uh, and new drug, and those are actually pushing prices costs up. In, and despite some of the organizational reforms in, in different provinces, we have not really seen that cost curve for a healthcare system is bending much. So the challenge stays there, and something needs to be done. 
I don't have the solution for it, but something needs to be done. And so I guess I put that question there. Is it really time to look at the Canada Health Act and see whether we need to make changes to that to ensure that the healthcare system can survive and stay and, and, and be sustainable over time. I, again, I, I'm just putting that question out there. I don't really know exactly what you can do to the, to the Canada Health, Health Act to, to, to help, but it is an issue. The Canada Health Act is an, is an old act, and probably it needs to be reviewed, and maybe some improvements need to be, to be made. Let me finish by just a few words on pharmacare. Last year in this event, I, I presented the... Uh, the cost of the pharmacare in the, con in the fiscal context and essentially concluded that it is very difficult for the federal government to afford a, a national pharmacare. Fiscally, it, will, it would be difficult for the federal government. Now, since last year, in fact, fiscal situation at the federal level has deteriorated and partly because of the new measures that the government introduced in the, in the 2019 budget and also in their election platform, uh, spending increases and uh, tax declines. As a result, we see federal deficit is rising relative to last year. So again, when I look at the cost of the pharmacare, and the task force uh, actually came out last year, the report, and it showed the cost actually is significant. When I look at that, I, I look at that and say fiscally, for the federal government, it would be very difficult to actually put forward a national pharmacare program. The best they may be able to do would be to fill the gaps, the gaps that exist in, in different provinces. But that is, that is, that, that's an issue that probably is going to be discussed later on today. And finally, you all know that most provinces actually don't want a national pharmacare because they're afraid that once it is there, they're going to end up holding the bag, and the federal government will not be able to continue providing the, the, the funding that would be needed for that. So I stop there. Thank you very much, and I'll be happy to answer your question. So my name is Bill Charnetsky. I'm uh, Executive Vice President for Health System Solutions at Point Click Care. You're going to be hearing from me and uh, two others who I will ask to join me on the uh, stage right now while I thank Mustafa. So thank you very much for that presentation. I am completely resisting the urge to use the fact that I have the mic now to say a few things, but I won't do that. Um, uh, one of the things that, uh, that for people who have heard me speak before I go on and on about is from a public policy perspective how critical it is in our country to separate the concept of biopharmaceuticals from other innovations in the healthcare or life sciences industry. Because in this country, the policy levers are so different with respect to the adoption and scaling of those two types, let's say, of health innovation, that when we lump them together under this life sciences umbrella, or, or even when you're looking at the cost and the impact of adopting and scaling innovation, it's, they get muddled um, because... Uh, these companies and others can show reams of data how we are so unproductive in our health system that even the introduction, as you alluded to, a rudimentary innovation technology or processes in the health system will bring costs down in the aggregate. 
But when we lump them into the, the astronomical prices of biopharmaceuticals, of course, as your data shows, it tells a different story. So I'm not going to get off that soapbox in my lifetime, I think. We're now going to talk about growing that health innovation ecosystem, uh, which I was just alluding to. And, uh, and I think this will be pretty exciting. You know, this is the fifth Health Innovation Summit, and, uh, and I spoke at the first one. Um, and it's kind of good and bad. Good because, of course, Canada 2020 is one of my favorite uh, organizations in this country, so I'm always happy to help out. The bad is I cannot believe, as I was preparing for this, how similar my messages will be now to what they were five years ago. And I'm sure that'll be a theme uh, from us uh, as a whole. Um, you know, people way more eloquent than me have said some version of we've accomplished a lot, but we've got a lot of work ahead of us. And, uh, and I sort of feel like that's where we are. So for what we'll do is uh, each one of us will take kind of eight to ten minutes to talk a little bit about uh, our perspective on the innovation ecosystem. Um, and, uh, and when I introduce uh, my friends, you will hear that we each have different perspectives. And I think when you look at our career paths in the whole, we've all had, uh, in the collective, we've had lots of different experiences from different perspectives within the, um, in this health tech innovation ecosystem, health innovation ecosystem. So we're going to talk a little bit. We're going to have a bit of discussion amongst ourselves. And then I want to leave time for questions at the end, uh, because I think that'll be a really fruitful discussion. Um, so I'm going to introduce Janet and Matthew first, and then I'll do my little bit. Um, Janet Dalglish is the National Director for Business Development and Government Relations at Bayshore Healthcare. I'm sure this room knows Bayshore. Um, Janet supports all divisions in creating value propositions and working with government uh, partners to solve healthcare problems. One of the cool things that Bayshore has done recently, and I've, I've seen this in Toronto, is they've carved off an innovation team that's um, really helped demonstrate patient outcomes um, as they transition from hospital to home and how that's supported by digital workflows across teams in the many different settings that reside within Bayshore. Um, And Matthew and I have known each other forever, I think. Um, He's now the GM for digital at GE Healthcare. um, And uh, they really are so strong in driving thought leadership, um, uh, doing market and business development, M&A, and bringing uh, digital health and AI initiatives and strategic partnerships programs across the entire health ecosystem. I really, in my old job as Chief Health Innovation Strategist, I've benefited a lot from Matthew and colleagues at GE Healthcare, so it's great to have him here. So the goal of the presentations is to, as I said, give you a view into our world, um, new tech, new developments, new opportunities and the like, and then we'll have uh, a panel chat to talk about shared areas of concern um, and uh, (laughs) bottlenecks barriers, hurdles, all that kind of good stuff. But I'm bound to determine to try and keep this positive, too. So we avoid our instinct to talk about all the stuff that doesn't work when it comes to adopting and scaling health innovation in our country. Um, so for me, as I said, I'm with point-click care now. And, uh, and I, I've got a pretty rare set of experiences in Canada that uh, there's been, I've had a really enjoyable career. And I now stand as this, I feel like this sort of old person in the front of the room that gets to say I was a partner of a big corporate law firm. I was a senior staffer here in Ottawa a billion years ago. Um, I was with AstraZeneca, a biopharmaceutical company, both in Canada and globally. And now I'm with Point Click Care, which is a true Canadian success story in the field of health tech. So, so that's, that means that I've had really uh, 
quite an interesting set of not just kind of career experiences, but now a set of perspectives to bring. And I have, for my entire career since leaving Tories, the law firm, uh, been lucky enough to be working on innovative health solutions from a systemic perspective and, uh, and focusing on the adoption and scaling of health innovation. It is now 15 years ago when Gabriella Prada, who many of you know, uh, who, and uh, Neil Fraser, who many of you know, both at Medtronic, uh, we actually started to work on this issue of health as an economic driver and the adoption and scaling of health innovation through the Conference Board of Canada. Um, that was 15 years ago. So, as I said, um, you know, we've been doing lots of, lots of different things, um, and sometimes it feels like we haven't made much progress, and then other times I think we have. So, um, what I wanted to do is, uh, my, my sort of pet perspective on this, before I hand it over to the other two, is to really talk about how this notion of health as an industry is so critical to our future in this country. And um, it's going to pick up on what Mustafa was talking about. Um, it's really taking advantage of Canada's health innovation opportunity and addressing what I think many people are really calling a health innovation imperative. So like I said, more eloquent people than me have talked about um, how far we've come and how far we have to go. But that health innovation opportunity, this is my principal soapbox, is we can leverage our increasing federal and provincial investment in healthcare as an economic driver. So, as you've heard me say before, if you take nothing else from this session, uh, take from this that health is an economic driver. The industry of health is the fastest growing, arguably, job and wealth creator in the 21st century. And uh, we now spend, as a country, well over $200 billion annually in that industry. And we, uh, are, you've heard um, you know, Simon Kennedy, the former Deputy Minister of Health, now at industry, talk about health as an economic driver. Increasingly, people are talking about it that way. It is more than a cost center. It's more than a line item on the budgets. It's an opportunity to use the adoption and scaling of new innovative health technologies and processes to um, grow jobs, create wealth, increase productivity, of our health system uh, in this country. Those are not dirty concepts, and they're not mutually exclusive from improving patient outcomes. So on the economic benefits side, the story goes something like, you know, we're seeing it in, in like day by day across the country. We are no longer going to be able to rely on winning in those low-cost industries, whether they're manufacturing or resource extraction, those kinds of things in the same way that we have in the past. So we've got to, like everywhere else in the world, invest in the knowledge-based economy. And, uh, and that economy, those sectors are highly, highly competitive. So we, as a country and as individual provinces, have to pick industrial sectors that are large, that are rapidly going and mo growing, and most importantly, in which we have a competitive advantage. So for us, that is health. Remember, over $200 billion invested in a fast-growing job and wealth creator. That is a competitive advantage. They do not have that in the same way in other jurisdictions in, on the, in the world. Um, and that can lead to and should lead to long-term economic growth and scaling up our domestic countries as we look to developing the job base at home for our kids and grandkids. So that sounds trite. Um, but, you know, look, if you look at some of the data that's come out of even Toronto recently, Toronto created more tech jobs last year than uh, any city outside of Boston, more than San Francisco. 
And, and that is, frankly, not even with a clear-cut policy imperative behind it uh, or set of policy drivers behind it. That's almost in spite of those of us who believe in, uh, in public policy as a driver of economic growth. Um, that's the economic side, but to build on what Mustafa was talking about, the system's not sustainable. As it, the health system is not sustainable as it's currently constructed. Um, if you look at the data out of Ontario to kind of bring this down to, to basics, if you take out debt financing, we're already spending over 50% of our operational budget on health. Um, that's, again, Mustafa was more eloquent than I would be. That is not sustainable in the long term. Um, so... We need to be more productive in the health system. We need to resist the urge to just continually say from different quarters, different stakeholders, we need more money. We need more money in beds. We need more money in staffing because that will not solve the problem with the silver tsunami ahead of us. At Point Click Care, we talk about age 83, and you can see it from the numbers that, uh, that Mustafa showed. Age 83 is that magic age when people start to consume in massive disproportion the health resources of the system. And the baby boomers aren't there yet. We're still, the front edge of the baby boom is still a few years away from, even from that. So, um, so we really need to, to get better at this from a perspective of uh, the economic side as well as the sustainability side. So, fine. Let me just highlight a couple of success stories and we'll, we'll move it to Janet and Matthew. Um, it's not all grim. <laughs> it's not all grim. Despite the fact that we haven't got that coherent set of policy drivers, there are all sorts of success stories across this country in the health tech field specifically. And that I could not have talked about five years ago. So I'm going to talk about four companies, or, or uh, not talk about, but I'm going to highlight uh, three companies in addition to Point Click Care that we really worked with at our office in Ontario uh, at the chair of Chief Health Innovation Strategist. And they are significantly bigger now and bringing more solutions and better patient outcomes as a result. Um, so Point Click Care, just to be clear, the global leader in providing cloud-based solutions to the senior care market. Still headquartered in Mississauga, 1,600 employees, well over $400 million Canadian in revenue. They don't need financing. They haven't gone public because they don't need the money. That's how successful this is. There are 90% of the long-term care homes in Ontario. We're not in Quebec and New Brunswick yet. Um, so if you take those provinces out, we're in 70% of long-term care homes across the country. That accounts for less than 10% of our revenues because the rest of it comes to the United States. So we've got a global leading company, in effect, driving U.S. business, still headquartered in Canada. So 1,100 people work between 1,000 and 1,100 people work in Mississauga as a result of us having a, globally, a global company headquartered in the country. Um, that, that, as we all know, uh, if we're public policy geeks, is one of the gaping holes in our health, general ecosystem, let alone health. So, so that's point-click care. But that's not the only one. Um, when I spoke at the first summit five years ago, Adrian Shire, uh, Shower from uh, Alaya Care in Montreal was one of the first people to talk to me after he left the mic after I left the mic. And um, it was pretty amazing when he was telling me about Care and their technology that, um, that allows uh, real communication in the primary care market across physicians and patients. Care now has had subsequent rounds of fam- uh, financing. They're over 200 employees. They've got offices in Montreal and Toronto. Um, they're doing acquisitions that leave them in the leading position in this country and, and, uh, and they will have tons of potential, have tons of potential in North America, but where they're going. 
Navari Health out of Kingston, a series of integrated modules, and is the only system that allows, the, uh, allows you to electronically manage right across the entire continuum of care from primary to specialized, uh, acute and post-acute. So e-referral, e-consulting, et cetera. When I visited John Sinclair in his office in Kingston, I guess three years ago, they had 20-plus employees. I ran into him this week at another event, over 60 employees. Um, and now, it's in addition to having presence in Ontario and with the Ontario system, uh, he's spending most of his time in Australia. That's where they're growing their business significantly. Um, and, uh, and, there, and there's many others. The other one I really like is Thrive Health, which used to be called New Hippo Health out of Vancouver, so uh, two guys in Vancouver in 2016 uh, really wanted to use their tech experience to help patients not get lost between the cracks as they're moving their way through the system. So they're now a 40-person-plus software company uh, with revenues growing at over 100% a year, at least for now. And, and really they act as a, as a, as a platform that, that is the glue that holds the system together. So they help patients in communication and, and information and data before and after uh, surgeries and other acute care events. And they, you know, when you ask them what's been helpful, and as we talk about the ecosystem going forward, you'll hear from Alex Munter later today from CHEO and David Halliwell from Thrive Health cites Alex as one of his original uh, mentors and people that were helpful along the way. And the other one I could talk about, which I always liked, is Matthew Broad, which had a clear water also out of CHEO. Uh, you know, they developed an audio box technology for doing audio audiometry, so testing of hearing, um, that starts out as a little you know, idea in an incubator at CHEO. And now they've raised subsequent rounds of financing, and they're employing people and on and on it goes. So, as I said, we've got a long way to go, but those barriers that we would have seen in a slide that I would have shown five, four, three, two you know, years ago, they still exist. Procurement of innovation is a challenge. We don't have clear pathways to the adoption, scalability of innovation, and we still are not aligned and we don't collaborate sufficiently across the system. So, with that as a bit of context, um, why don't I hand it over to Janet first? and then Matthew, and then um, we'll take it from there. Very good. Thank you very much for the uh, opportunity for uh, presenting today and sharing some of the really cool things that we've, uh, we've done. Um, so I wanted to just uh, take 30 seconds to introduce Bayshore so you had some context of why we've developed what we have. Uh, we're a Canadian organization uh, approaching 14,000 uh, employees. Uh, and we provide healthcare services uh, right across Canada in all provinces and two of the territories. And uh, we are a best practice spotlight organization and have implemented best practice guidelines nationally. Uh, and we really are very much an evidence based uh, organization informing care. Uh, the markets where we play, uh, our customers include. Health Canada in the room. Uh, it includes provincial governments for home care uh, programs, uh, international pharma companies for our patient assistance programs and specialty pharmacy business, and insurance companies uh, where we provide uh, professional medical and clinical services. Okay, so enough about Bayshore. Um, the purpose of today, though, is really to explain to you three different uh, digital health solutions that we've brought forward. And I wanted to talk a little bit about how we believe that this approach is a way of helping to solve many of Canada's healthcare problems. 
I want to talk to you about the digital health platform that we have uh, developed and deployed. We are currently using, we're into our, uh, well into our second year on the use of this platform. And uh, I wanted to also give a quick demonstration of my mybayshorecare.ca, which is the portal access to our platform. And I'll take a moment to talk about Care Chart at Home, which is one of our use cases uh, for the use of the, uh, the platform, and can also talk about what our next steps are around palliative care. So uh, the, um, we've been on a multi-year journey in creating this digital health ecosystem. Um, and, and what does that mean? It's, it's really about how we can gather data that informs better care and better patient and family experiences. Um, a platform really is about having that foundational um, ability to load various software solutions, apps, different um, you know, ways of adding in, um, in systems. And um, Bill, thank you for going over uh, many of the um, sort of leading edge um, companies, uh, healthcare software firms, uh, because a number of those are already loaded onto our platform. So we're there. The issue is there is no one system that does everything that we need. We need a whole series of connected tools uh, and workflows, processes, uh, different technologies to do different things in order to follow that patient across their journey. And so having that architecture was foundational. Uh, so, you know, that's, that's really uh, an important um, starting point for us. We had to create that digital experience uh, for patients, and the only way to do that is through co-design. Uh, we really believe that bringing patients and their family members and some caregivers who were not, you know, family members, because they each have a different voice in creating that experience and bringing them in and co-designing what they wanted. So I was one of the, what I'd call the program architects of a new and innovative model that brought a transitional care model to life. And I was really proud of all the work that we had done as a team. So we would go into the co-design session and about 50% of my assumptions were wrong. <laughs> so I think that's really important to share that we thought we knew what patients and families wanted and guess what? We were off base. So we actually had the ability to say, put that in the dumpster and start fresh. And uh, we created some workflows, digital workflows, to support patients while they're still in hospital to then be able to transition into a transitional care unit and then step down back into community and be able to achieve uh, an outcome where patients previously had been ALC, alternate level of care, for about 250 days. And we were getting them home on average of 33 days with no need for ongoing home care. Cool. All right, so now you're starting to see some of the impact of, of some of this. So how does a patient and family access all of this power? 
um, they access it through mybayshorecare.ca. So it may look like it's just a portal. It's not just the portal. It's the portal to the platform. And it's an open um, system that has all of these apps that travel across the continuum of care. And um, it allows us to create a user experience um, that truly is, is, uh, is digital and virtual. Please note that many of Bayshore's programs, though, that we're funded for are all about in-person touch. They're one-on-one encounters. So do we feel we can totally replace uh, that therapeutic relationship between our clinicians and that, that patient and family? No. But we feel we can use digital to leverage that experience and create a unique experience. And that's what's so um, critical, um, is that creating that uh, unique experience. Many years ago, before I came to Bayshore, I used to teach at um, uh, one of the college's uh, CRM marketing strategy. And part of that program was actually teaching how to um, code and develop a database that would create a marketing um, platform for organizations. And my learning from that was that every customer or client is unique. And so that's exactly what we're trying to create through Bayshore, is a unique patient experience that pushes just the right amount of information needed for that patient to make decisions and help them on their their care journey at that point in time. You don't want to just let them, I mean, uh, WebMD can be your friend or not. And so we feel it's really important to, to help the patient to drive and pull the right kind of information that's uh, reflective of their diagnosis, their, uh, their history, and is appropriate uh, information, and be able to share that with family as needed. So the earlier point um, around needing to be able to share that medical information across that family, our platform allows that circle of trust to be created. The patient is the one who logs in and gives consent who they want their health care information to be shared with. That's such a critical, important point here. And it's our, not our way around PHIPAA, but um, as an example in Ontario, but it's a way of helping to create the patient being in charge of their health data. That's, that's absolutely important. It's a new paradigm. We've got to reflect, and we have to be able to uh, support that. Um, so um, what we put onto this platform that's the patient view um, is a selection based upon what the patient or family wants. They create their profile. If they want to have a schedule of all of the events of when their PSW or their, their nurse is coming to visit or where their physiotherapist is coming to do certain uh, tasks, um, train, um, education, coaching, um, or you know, how they're working towards a, a, a care, care goal around exercise plan, uh, dietitian um, changing behaviors around cooking, etc. We load what is specific and that that patient wants. So they create their profile. 
Uh, one of the use cases is the care chart at home. We've created a 24-7 uh, telehealth solution, specifically starting with oncology patients. So the key problem is that Many oncologists were um, receiving escalation calls at 2, 3 o'clock in the morning about their patients who had just received chemo treatment in a, an oncology treatment center earlier that day. And, um, you know, they seemed to be answering the same sort of questions over and over. And um, those who didn't get that escalation ended up just going back to the eMERGE department in the middle of the night. That's the worst possible patient experience for anybody who has an oncolo- who's on an oncology uh, journey. So what we did is we helped solving the problem, and we've scaled it now to 74 hospitals, cancer treatment centers across the province of Ontario. So as that patient leaves um, their treatment center, they're given our phone number, We have loaded into our system the COSTARS, the evidence-based oncology pathways. We are able to view using one of the companies um, that was mentioned earlier and with another company, uh, Verto, that um, we're working with. And we've been able to create a view into the hospital EMR. We've got access to all of the information. And we're able to talk that poor patient off the ledge to say, it's okay. Your temperature, yes, it's a little higher. It's okay. Let's, uh, I'm going to call you back in 20 minutes um, because we're just going to do another test. We're fine. And we've been able over 82% to um, be able to keep those patients at home and not have them go back to the eMERGE. For those few that did get referred back, uh, we're able to avoid the eMERGE department and go directly into admission, again, reducing risk. And so there's the symptom management experience and um, how we would be able to actually apply this for palliative care. And that's our connected journey. So thank you very much. Looking forward to lots of questions. It's been so fascinating, even in such a short space of time, to hear a number of different comments from the economics to the clinical fraternity and obviously my colleagues in in technology that really resonate. And I want to take a little bit of a forward leap. Um, I want to look at what we're missing out on, what Canada is blindsided to, and maybe kind of provoke a few ideas for this audience around what we could be doing a little differently. So, in 1885, Canada finalized the unified and standardized railway system. And in 19, sorry, 88, Basel I, global initial standardized banking framework. And of course, in 1990, the World Wide Web. Now, why do I use those as a starting point. AI, artificial intelligence, and I promise not to geek out, is the fundamental technology that Canada is currently one of four, five, six countries globally as a thought leader, as an academic, and as a developer 
of early-stage artificial intelligence. I don't think I need to remind you in the room who individuals are, where those centers are. There's been a lot of fantastic initial activity around stimulating research, development in AI across multiple sectors, but particularly in healthcare. And I'm, I'm lucky every day I meet startups and scale-ups and academia and superclusters and, and the whole gamut of people that are involved in looking at artificial intelligence and what that will mean. The reality is that AI will fundamentally shift, and I don't think anyone in this room can deny both you know, society as a whole, the way we live our lives, and certainly um, in healthcare and what the future of healthcare will mean. Now, on one hand, you could, you could say, is AI, yeah, sure, it's disruptive, but it is currently an economic developer, development mod, uh, you know, mechanism. It's stimulating. There's, there's hundreds of millions of dollars that have been poured in from federal and provincial governments to stimulate SMEs, to stimulate academics, and, and all the training and education that's now going on and booming across the entire education system here in Canada. It's also going to be a cost avoidance method or technology. And to, to potentially, in the next 10, 15, 20 years, to, to avoid Mustafa's worst-case scenario is to say, how do we increase the productivity within our health system? How do we embed AI as a unified or a horizontal technology, even within you know, what Janet's just described in terms of that digitization of virtual care? So there are, in my mind, five simple challenges that Canada is facing. The first is access to data. And I'm not going to dwell on that. We've had lots and lots of debate in the country, and there's lots and lots of discussions around privacy, governance, etc. And I think, you know, I welcome and recognize the, the, the progress thus far in, in Canada with the digital charter and the stakeholder engagement across the spectrum. There's more to be done, and my comment would be we need to do it faster. Bill and I used to debate, you know, in his former role, this, this challenge of access to the health system, the stimulus of, of homegrown technologies. He labor, mentioned three or four. For those three or four, there are a 1,000 potential technology companies, and many of them, many, many, many of them are focused in some form of machine learning or artificial intelligence. And I can tell you now, as a representative of a, of a multinational company, that unless we do something a little different, 995 of those are going to flounder. And that's a lost opportunity, both from the, the knowledge and the content, the stimulus of dollars that have been spent to, to get those companies, if we cannot work out how to provide those companies access the three other things that I really want to focus just a couple of minutes on um, that are much more important in the context of thinking forward. The, what, the first is I meet a dozen startups in Canada across the country every week. 
The single biggest challenge is not having data scientists, is not having access to, to some form of technology to develop algorithms. And it's not even in small pockets the challenge of access to, to small data sets. It's actually the ability to develop that technology, that algorithm, for want of a simple word, that, that is true and proven and supports Sandy and the entire clinical fraternities, the veracity of that technology, and through the eyes of Health Canada and other regulatory bodies. No one, no one or very few startups actually understand the hurdle of developing code to the end point of actually having that in, in clinical practice. So that's a big challenge, and that's a huge yawning gap at the moment in providing access for startups or, or for novel techno AI technology to actually realize and see light of day. The fourth one is competition. As I said, Canada, wonderful, wonderfully located place. I can speak for GE and say, you know, we want to do more and more and more activity here in Canada as much as we possibly can. But the race is on. I don't know, for those who may have seen the white paper released by the EU just last week, um, you know, Canada is, uh, you know, North America is by far the largest market in, in, in government spend around artificial intelligence, followed by Asia, followed by Europe. But the reality is, unless we have some standardization, some unification, not just in data access and governance and so on, but in terms of development and in terms of shepherding these technologies, these early stage technologies, not only for the benefit of the microeconomics of those companies, hopefully that we get more point-click cares, but also to reinvest that technology into, our, into the actual health system here. I just want to highlight one thing that we are doing, um, and, and I want to put this through the lens of this is not, my job is not to sell technology. My, my job is to, to provide access to the global network of what GE Healthcare is doing and to bring that access to startups, to scale-ups, to health authorities, Right now, ourselves and many of our competitors or collaborators, we're in this really interesting time where we almost want to be philanthropic. This is not about us making money. We're not going to make money by developing algorithms. We're out to kind of accelerate the change in the way that healthcare is delivered. And I'm being very frank. There's this period where ultimately multinationals across not only pharma, but also the med tech device range, who are massive generators of data, we're a little bit constricted in not just the access, but the ability to liberate the data that we, our machines generate. We, we generate a scan, some form of picture on a human being, um, sorry, six times every second somewhere in the world. That's an awful lot of data every day. And we want to be able to do stuff with that. So, you know, I, we, we're eager to bring these tools, bring these technologies that lay open the ability to bridge from that garage or that research department in a university or in that academic host, teaching hospital or even that startup 
to say, let's, let's help you navigate the quality aspects, meet the regulatory requirements, both Health Canada, FDA, CE, etc., and let's accelerate that technology into the point of use that then generates a meaningful impact. I won't dwell on this. We, we are already active here in Canada, quietly, in developing with individual collaborations. My ask of this room and this audience is really to think about how we can do, we can stimulate this beyond the walls of an individual province or beyond the walls of an individual hospital. What we learn today in London should be able to be shared or similarly the technology and the development and the research that goes on should be coordinated with those centers of excellence clinically across the country if it's going to solve significant problems that, frankly, every province faces. So I, think, I urge you to think about how we leverage this availability of you know, multinational, unified platforms, for want of a better word, but a little bit of an ecosystem aspect, be able to drive the interaction beyond the traditional bounds of, of medical research and development through the lens of data and AI to ultimately accelerate solving that problem that we may face in 10 or 15 years. Two, three final thoughts, um, a little provocative. I've mentioned this to a few different jurisdictions. Bill's heard me mention this before. Why don't we, you know, why don't we have on our, on our driver's license the ability to donate your medical record when you, when you die? We're all hung up on, well, you can't access it, it's private, and so on and so forth. And whenever I raise this question, you know, considering the wealth of data that sits behind someone who sadly passes away and what happened before that, now that we've lived in a digitized health system, that is unbelievable. And no one can give me one simple answer as to why we shouldn't. Food for thought. The second is, um, is perhaps to think about a little differently. We, we've talked, Canada's been, you know, has dabbled in the P3, the P3 public-private partnerships, you know, organizations like Bayshore are, are a, a beneficiary of that. We've dabbled with that in infrastructure. Well, why not dabble with that in stimulating industry to drive towards certain problems? We know the macro challenges. We just don't know where the, 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 the specific problems are. Come to industry. Let us find ways in which we could solve specific issues that may solve that, that gap in, in the fiscal budget, or it may solve that gap in access. And finally, you know what, I, I really admire, you know, obviously the, it's always a competitive landscape. We've, we've seen lots of different countries splash lots and lots of money, and no one will ever keep up with what China is doing in terms of artificial intelligence and development. But, but I, I would urge you all to think about, and, I, and I, you know, don't get me wrong, I, I recognize and acknowledge superclusters, fantastic initiatives, but we can be a little more agile. I think we need you know, the governments and the not-for-profits and the, and the organizations that have access to funding, seed funding, should think more with, through an agile lens. Think through the lens of a crowdsource or crowdfunding type arrangement. Many of the developments that go on in terms of pushing technology, particularly AI technology, along the funnel don't require tens and hundreds of millions of dollars. So just think about how you be a little more agile and nimble in, in 
making, dispersing some of that, t- some of that access to, to seed funding. All right, so with that, I will uh, pass it back to Bill. Uh, so we have a few minutes left for questions. Um, so uh, following up on your conversation about AI and then following up on some of the previous presentations we've talked about, I don't know, I, that's the first time I've ever heard the silver, what was it, the silver, silver tsunami. tsunami. Um, our company, Skyhive, is an artificial intelligence company that works on the future of work. So we use artificial intelligence to track skills within the labor market. I'm wondering for the panel if you could talk about how we're going to keep up with the silver tsunami in terms of care from actual human beings, in terms of what you think our post-secondary institutions need to be prepared for, and not only how you think the nature of a caregiver or a provider will change over time. Um, So I've been with Bayshore for about 17 years, and when I started, it was all paper-based documentation, And we left the chart in the patient's home so that as our staff left the house, the first thing they would do is go over the chart and start ripping through it and start reading it and trying to understand it. Uh, Then um, we saw the evolution of introducing point-of-care electronic clinical management information systems so that our frontline staff would be able to have the information. We had um, algorithms that would guide and inform their, uh, their care that they delivered, which is a very, what I would say, uh, provider-centric approach to creating a system. And we recognize that's great, but it's almost like, and I don't mean this literally, that we had forgotten about the patient or their family. Uh, the issue is we realized that we needed a much larger data set to really get to where we need to go with artificial intel- intelligence. You need huge Big data. And so that's why we realized we need clinical, we need digitalized clinical information as well as uh, enough data about the patient and the family in order to create that, that uh, experience that's, that's patient-specific. So leading to the employment and opportunities Again, we need to reach out to exactly the right type of clinician needed to match now to that individual patient's needs. And so we're moving, you know, like we're spiraling up to a new level of how we use data to inform the best type of experiences. Yeah, I'd I'd just build on that and say, I mean, I think, you know, there'll be a, de- a significant degree, I'm sure, as you're seeing in the, in the workplace, you know, of automation, um, predictive aspects to this. Um, will AI solve the silver tsunami? Probably not, but it will certainly prevent the gold tsunami or the whatever, Gen X tsunami or, you know, those that would follow. Because ultimately, the, the benefit of AI is really around, as, as Janet just said, is, is simply around getting greater, much greater specificity to a patient's current needs, but ultimately will be to predict what, when, when, and we all know, even the economic, economists, sorry, Mustafa, but know that early inv- intervention is a far cheaper uh, outcome than, than uh, late, late uh, disease management. 
And, and I'll add, um, I guess it's not really an AI point, but two pretty fundamental things that eventually will get to the, our ability as a health system to include these types of solutions. One is the labor issue. So you've seen this play out in British Columbia. The Ontario ministry uh, ministers have talked about it. Uh, we don't have enough PSWs. Like, it's a flat-out labor issue. And on the one hand, it's not complicated, for those of you <laughs> economists. Like, there's a supply and demand curve. It's not permanent employment. They don't get paid enough. Right? Like some of this stuff isn't that complicated, but, uh, and it's a bit frustrating to people like me. But anyway, that notion of not just, ha- just not having enough people to deal with uh, people who, you know, patients who are in the hallways right now. So if you think about logically how this works, hallway medicine is a catchphrase, but it's, it's the right point. So we, you obviously just get people out of the hospitals more quickly whether, when they need to be. Okay, so do we have enough long-term care beds? Well, it turns out in some parts of Ontario, and most familiar with that, we actually do have enough long-term care beds. But you know what we don't have enough? PSWs. We don't have people to actually to, to work with the residents once they move out. So you've got empty beds sitting in some places of Ontario. Obviously, there's the rest of the province where it's a bigger issue. So, so that's just kind of a fundamental thing, that as much as we're talking about AI and, and the big aspects of innovation, innovation also includes, you know, it just ain't here yet. And so uh, that gets me to the second one, which is some of the change management capabilities of our health service providers are just not where they need to be to bring in AI solutions or even, uh, I mean, Bayshore's very good at this, so I shouldn't be pointing at you. <laughs> but, you know, in other organizations, they just aren't as strong as they need to be to drive change management throughout the organization. So one example I heard recently, and I won't name the company, but it's a big, successful, highly regarded company that doesn't have internal change management such that they're not even training the trainer in individual operations when new technologies, new innovative solutions are being introduced into the system. So, so think about that. That's kind of fundamental. So I guess it's just really a flag that, it, that there's, there's parallel streams here. One are the big, super cool sexy innovation aspects and some of it in our health system across the country is we just got to do stuff better. We got to be more productive on the basics and, uh, and hopefully those two streams will come together. I think you had a question. Well, it's actually a bit of a co- combination question comment. Um, I'm really struck by the first presentation, now your presentation, and trying to make a linkage between innovation and cost. Now, all of your companies sound amazing, but I'm struck by at least two of you, if not three of you. Your biggest markets are the U.S., they're global, Canada's 3% of the global market. I just did a bunch of five-minute research, which makes me a perfect candidate for the Dunning-Kruger effect, but it seems like the big cost drivers in Canada are people in health, people and places, right? And so, and there's also seems to be an underlying assumption that there's a total amount of cost, or sorry, total amount of health in the economy so if you improve the efficiency at which you're producing health, that cost goes down. I'm wondering, you know, as you provide better health and better health care, if health care-seeking behavior doesn't go up, if that doesn't actually drive costs in the economy. So I'd love to get your thoughts on, like, I mean, and sorry, I mean, I also loved your presentation. I mean, I think the things you're doing are amazing. It just doesn't seem intuitively obvious to me that there's a, that there's a clear link between what you're doing and kind of improving the efficiency and the kind of cost-effectiveness of, of our health system. So, so I'm going to start, and then Matthew, I'm sure, has tons to say on this one at least. Um, 
So, uh, first of all, uh, one of the things we said in the Chief Health Innovation Strategist Office is we were, you know, really advising companies on how to get into the health system in Ontario was you need data, you need evidence. And in particularly in a world increasingly dominated with a value-based care approach, rightly so, uh, where you're looking at true patient outcomes in relation to actual costs of delivering health care, here's a fundamental problem with that equation. We don't really know. We don't have true patient outcomes in all the disciplines, especially across the patient journey. And what we really don't have is the actual cost of delivering health care. We have all sorts of proxies for both the numerator and the denominator. Uh, but reimbursement cost is not an actual cost when it comes to looking at how much these things cost and where we can actually create value. So, so, so point one is for all of you who are entrepreneurs or in startups or scale-ups, please generate the evidence as best as you're able that shows that there's cost effectiveness or value being created by your offering. Um, uh, so, so the second issue, as I said, is we, we actually don't know. Um, the third challenge, just in case things aren't complicated enough, uh, I mean, you heard the president of the CMA talk about virtual care delivery. And there's a statement in there that said the doctors, I think if I heard it right, should be paid the same for delivering virtual care as they are for in-person care. Well, they tried that in British Columbia and it was well on the way to bankrupting the health system. And that's not really much of an exaggeration because it's not that clear cut. We need more, careful what word I choose, we need more focused thinking on topics like that. It can't be a one for one because it's just going to happen. There's a, right now, there's an over-demand for health. So if we make it more accessible, it will be more expensive. That's a causal effect. But it doesn't have to be, because it doesn't cost the same whether you're, it's a notional or physical cost um, for a physician to deliver virtual care. They don't. They can do more in, the same, in a given period of time. So that kind of thinking has to happen. But uh, it, there's loads of challenges on this, but I would keep encouraging everybody, especially those of you who are policymakers, to push the envelope on driving increased productivity in the system. Because to bring it back to point-click care or G-healthcare or others, what is going to produce better patient outcomes more productively? A paper-based system that has the kinds of things that you were describing from years ago or literally records stapled to a patient gurney as someone is discharged from an acute care facility into a post-acute care facility, or a system where you have um, a platform or solution that goes across the patient journey, which not only eliminates the error, so that's errors are costly in healthcare, the inefficiencies costly in healthcare, burnout of physicians and nurses and other providers costly in healthcare, but it also creates a platform now for standardization, more measurements, and which starts to build on itself, so ultimately you have a system which can be held accountable in the right way for delivering best of care at the lowest cost. No, I, I, you said that beautifully. I mean, you've got to stop thinking about AI as a shiny box. I mean, ultimately, AI is, is just a method to, to make intelligence out of that data. And, and I think that the, you know, we've seen early, very, very early stages of productivity gains uh, in parts of the world um, that have re- fundamentally reduced cost of delivering the same service or, or service avoidance. You know, and, and again, I think a big driver to that is as we move so, you know, algorithms back into the home care and the community, community-based care, you're, you're making more with the, the limited resources. So um, we can take the, the economic model behind it offline, but yeah.
Hey, everyone. It's Alex from Canada 2020. Thanks so much for listening to part one of our live recording from the Canada 2020 Health Innovation Summit. We had so much good content from this event that we've actually split it up into three different parts. Part two will be released later this week on the 2020 Network feed, which will include remarks from the Honorable Mary Ng about the new Can Health Innovation Network, as well as a conversation with Alex Munter and Jody Butts about adopting innovation on the front lines of healthcare delivery. So thanks very much for tuning in. And as always, if you like what you heard, give us a review or tell your friends to subscribe to the 2020 Network presented by Interact. We'll be glad you sent them our way.